0: Hi, guys. Alana Terry here. You are listening to the Successful Writer Podcast. I'm glad you joined us. Today, I have a guest who is my own husband. So, Scott has recently been certified as a Myers-Briggs, what is it, consultant?
1: Type indicator practitioner. Got
0: it practitioner. And so for those of you familiar with Myers-Briggs, Scott can now officially help people figure out their personality type. If you don't know Myers-Briggs, you're going to learn all about it. And so we want to talk specifically today about how to know your type and specifically how your unique personality type can and will influence things like your creativity, your productivity. So today's episode is all about Myers-Briggs for authors, basically. So, welcome to Scott.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad we could uh, spend some time tonight talking about something. This is something that's been pretty near and dear to my heart as a uh, amateur
0: mm-hmm. for
1: several years. And uh, moving from the amateur realm into the professional realm has really just uh, deepened my understanding of what the Myers-Briggs type indicator is. And given me a, a much broader uh, understanding of how that can be
0: used. Right, right. So if you don't know, Scott works in the foster care industry, and so he licenses foster families. So his training in Myers-Briggs, I think we'll probably use Myers-Briggs and MBTI, What Myers-Briggs type indicator type is MBTI. We'll use those interchangeably, but yeah, he just got officially certified so that he can take this information to the foster parents he works with. And things like that. So there are tons of applications aside from just being really interesting to learn about your type. So let's dive in. So for those of you who maybe aren't familiar at all, the Myers-Briggs, they give you four letters. And so I think, is it going to be easiest to just talk about kind of each letter pairing first?
1: Well, let's just let's uh, step back just a little bit. I'd like to give a little bit of kind of input Please. as to what uh, the MBTI is. So Myers-Briggs, the the type indicator, is an assessment that was developed by a mother-daughter pair, Myers and Briggs, back uh, in the 60s, maybe even a little bit before they were doing some of the work. And they based that work off of psychologist Carl Jung, J-U-N-G. And what they did is they took uh, his work and kind of broadened it a little bit in order to make it more applicable for the everyday person. And then over the course of the last 40 years, uh, 60 years actually, they have really kind of narrowed down that focus to where they, they have a fantastic tool that really gives a very uh, deep understanding of, of one's individual personality type. And what that does is it starts out by giving us what we, what we call our preference pairs or our preferences. Uh, and that's what we'll kind of get into. So there are four preference pairs there are eight preferences and uh, Alana do you want me to go ahead and kind of work through that
0: yeah well you know what's really funny is that you and I are the exact opposite on every single pair and so maybe like you could explain your side of the pair I'll explain my side of the pair and then we can give some tips for authors based on where they are
1: sure that that works for me
0: so first pair why don't you start
1: the uh, extrovert (laughs) yeah the the first preference pair is uh, whether or not you're natural tendency or natural preference is to be an extrovert or to be an introvert. And what this is, is uh, it's an understanding about how we gain energy and uh, how we direct energy. So as an extrovert, I gain energy from the outside world. So a lot of people kind of look at extroverts and think, oh, well, you know, they're they're people people. They want to be out in big crowds all the time. They like to have parties. They like to go out. They, they hate to be alone. And that's not necessarily a true statement, especially as I get older. I find myself, as my beloved bride likes to tell me, I'm a home-bodied introvert. I'm sorry, Extra, a home-bodied yeah. extrovert. <laughs> yep. uh, I still gain my energy from the outside world, whether that's a radio or a podcast or television or or a book. Uh, sometimes it's it's sitting down and talking with people. But I usually find myself wanting to stay at home. You know, I, I work all day. I'm out of the house for 10 hours a day. When I get home, I don't want to go anywhere. But I find that when I do go somewhere, Uh, especially if it's a a small group setting or even a large group setting, I find myself really highly energized at that
0: time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other funny thing is that when you're at home, like if I were in an office setting for 10 hours a day, working a super stressful job, like you do, I would want to come home and like take an hour long bath and then sit in a massage chair for an hour And then, like, do yoga for half an hour. And then maybe I would feel ready to come downstairs and talk to people. But, like, when you come down, like, you know, you you talk, you're chatty. There's usually TV going on, even if it's just for background noise.
1: Yeah. I I really have found that uh, I always have to have multiple streams of information. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to think it was kind of an adult ADHD. And really, it's not. It's just as an extrovert, I gain energy. From the outside world, so yeah, if I have multiple streams,
0: mm-hmm. it's energizing. Yeah, it's harder for you to work in silence.
1: Absolutely. When I was in when I was in college, I could not turn turn the TV off, turn whatever off, and mm-hmm. just sit and write a paper in silence. It, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. But I could have maybe an audio book going and have a television show like MythBusters in the background Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I could write a 10 page paper in two or three hours and do all the research and really feel like I've done a good job but if I if it were quiet if I were in the library I can't do it it just doesn't work for me
0: yeah yeah and I think most authors you know so correct me if I'm on I can't think of a single career that caters more toward introverts (laughs) than being an author can you I mean, I'm sure there are like I don't know a monk. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe I, I can't think of you know. I mean, it's it's you're so much in your own head.
0: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. for
1: for what you do. I, yeah, I think I think you're probably right. There, this might be the specialty, mm-hmm.
0: but there are extroverted authors, and I think what Scott was saying about you know needing noise. You know, I know some people prefer to work in a coffee shop or put on you know background music. So if that helps you focus, then that makes total sense. Any tips? So picture yourself as a full-time writer or, you know, doing something behind the computer all day, and yet you're an extrovert. What, what would be the couple things that you would do to make sure that you were still, I guess, working at your peak capacity and not ignoring the side of you that really likes, you know, that extra input and lots of activity
1: and stuff. Yeah, I would, as an extrovert, I wouldn't be able to just sit in an office and, and write a book in silence. I would have to have stuff going on. And kind you would of like,
0: probably write a book with Star Trek playing in the background. Absolutely. I would put
1: Star Trek on. i put Stargate SG-1 on, you know, something. And it isn't even really music. It has to, music mm. doesn't really energize me as much as some other people That's do. Funny. For me, the spoken word is really, it's kind of that gaining information. Even when I'm at the gym, uh, and I go to the gym for a couple of hours a day, but I don't listen to music like most people do. I listen to an audiobook. It has to engage me as to where with music, a lot of people, well, I'm assuming, it just, they kind of, they disengage with the music because it's there just kind of feeding them. I don't, I don't know. I don't really understand it personally.
0: Because <laughs> you're not an introvert. <laughs> because I'm not an introvert.
1: So I have to have some sort of like information gain right. in order to do it. So if I were a writer, uh, I would put star trek on i'd go to a coffee shop but not not a quiet coffee shop mm-hmm. it'd have to be yeah. a place where there's you know people coming and going you know i might even keep the door open and let the kids run in and out because you that's gotta
0: have a little bit of chaos yeah
1: <laughs> yeah because lack of chaos and, and i as an extrovert don't really do well
0: mm-hmm. no that makes total sense and i'm going to assume that most people listening know what it's like to be an introvert but You know, I'm pretty classic introvert. Like I just said, if I were away from the home for hours a day, I'd come home and just need a lot of quiet time to recharge. I've talked before on the podcast when I travel, how hard it is for me to not get sick just because all the noise and activity is really stressful. So I think, you know, Scott's right too that writing really is a a great job for an introvert. And in that case, I would say some tips for you is to just realize that, yeah, you're going to need that that little bit of a break. So for example, we're recording this less than a week from when I got back from the 20 books conference in Vegas. And today was my first day where I wrote anything. And literally it was like 160 words. And I need to be okay with that because I I was there in, and there was so much activity that I know I need to give my introversion time to just kind of refuel and recharge before I can expect to perform at peak capacity.
1: Absolutely. And and that's, that's what's so important about understanding if you're an introvert or an extrovert. And it's interesting, a lot of people, this is one of those preference pairs where people really get tripped up. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think, well, I'm shy, I'm quiet, therefore I'm an introvert. Hmm. That isn't, it isn't even like a majority necessarily. So you
0: can be a shy extrovert.
1: Absolutely, you know. I think of, uh, or, or you can be uh, an introvert that is very gregarious because you have to be. I think of pastors. I know an awful lot of pastors who their job is to be out
0: with people yes. and, and they're preaching, yeah.
1: but they are some of the most introverted people I know. Mm-hmm. And then I've also I've known some people who are introverts, or I'm sorry, extroverts that they have to, you know, work in an office where it's quiet all day. And we're able to kind of train ourselves to do those things. But what one thing that's really important is not just taking, uh, you know, well, I'm an introvert and in, in running with it, but actually looking at what makes us an introvert, why we're an introvert or an extrovert. There's a lot more to it than just saying, well, I'm shy or I'm quiet, or say, having somebody else tell you, you know, hey, Alana, I, I believe you're an introvert. Well, just because I've said that, I don't really know what's going on inside you. And I would guess, at least within my training, whenever anybody tried to label somebody, uh, they were probably wrong about 35% of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know your type. You know your preference better than anybody else. Somebody can tell you you're something. That has nothing to do with the reality. The reality is who you are
0: that makes a ton of sense. If you are introverted or you want to understand introversion better, there's a really good book called Quiet. Um, And I heard about it once and like, how can there be a book about being an introvert? But it was actually really, really good. I uh, really recommend that for just understanding because I think society is kind of geared towards like society favors extroverts. You know, if you think about like who's popular in high school, it's the very bubbly, you know, bouncy or who's going to get the raise. It's the squeaky wheel who's, you know, in the box <laughs> or things like that. And so sometimes, yeah, I think it's important to be OK with, you know, whichever you are. Uh, yeah. All right. So the second preference, where are we up to? That's the, the N and S. The, the, S right? N-S,
1: the second preference pair is sensing or intuiting or intuition. And I am a sensor. This is an interesting one because for me, I didn't really get it until I was at the training. There was an activity that we did at the training that really helped me understand. But as a sensor, I use in order to uh, gather information. That's what this preference pair is all about, how an individual gathers information. I use my five senses. Now, of course, we all use our five senses, all the time you now of course and and there are more than just five senses but we use sound sight touch smell hearing we use all of these different senses in order to gather information for me that as i try to understand the world of, around me that's the most important thing when i see a forest i'm going to be looking at the individual trees instead of the the huge forest that's in front of me i want to see the the individual items that make up the whole and that's, uh, as a sensor, what it means to me.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things... So I'm I'm the opposite, as we already said. In all of these tendencies, Scott and I are the exact opposite. And so for me, as an N for an intuitor... Or Intuitors.
1: Or, you use intuition, so I use the word intuitor. I don't okay. know if it's right or wrong, but <laughs> it is what it is. So
0: I'm, I'm going to claim intuitor. So for me, I kind of take... Um, Like I'll look at something and think about how I feel. So a really, really good concrete example. When one of the kids is sick, I will send Scott a text and be like, oh yeah, poor guy, he's not feeling well. The very first thing Scott always asks is-
1: Without fail. Yeah,
0: without fail. Have you taken his temperature? Because he gets information with data and numbers and the concrete kinds of things, you know, the black and white things. If it's a fact, he can understand that. Whereas for me- I, I don't need to take my son's temperature to realize that he's lethargic, he's warm to the touch, he's droopy. So for me, like that may, makes way more sense. Yes, he's not feeling good because these are the symptoms I see. So maybe even like in what's quantifiable, is that maybe one of the big differences? Yeah,
1: I, I, you know, I think you can look at, at it that way. But as I understand it, it's not necessarily what's quantifiable but it's, I look at the details as to where somebody who uses in, in intuition looks at the whole. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. they gather information from the whole. Somebody who uses intuition tends to be more willing to kind of brainstorm things and kind mm-hmm. of see things as they can be.
0: It's more the creative side, correct?
1: I, no, I don't know that I would no. say that. Oh, okay. I, I would say that that... Um, none of these is more or or less than anything else. It's mm-hmm. simply how we gather information, because mm-hmm. you can have some sensors who are very very creative individuals. Mm-hmm. But really, what it is is it's the ability to, or not not even the ability, the tendency to seek the details as opposed to seeking okay. the uh, the what it could. The big be. picture
0: that makes yeah. a ton of sense because I know for me. Working with the VA, one of the most important things she does is handle these little minute detail things that I hate to have to worry about. And she's really, really good at keeping track of the details. So as an intuitor, if I'm more inclined to look at things in the big picture, I'm going to be less inclined to want to, you know, make sure my nook back matter links to my nook, you know, book two, you know, all these little, little itty bitty details. So if you like the details and it's possible that you would be the sensor right is that one way to gauge
1: that's that's Mm -hmm. yeah one of the gauges that you you
0: You know and it's interesting because i'm definitely the intuitor but i don't mind the numbers you know i like looking at my ad numbers and things like that but i also will look at it more big picture so for example i'm trying to think of how this would apply to authors and i think like a sensor someone who looks at the numbers and the data they might say something like i have a 4.7 star average that's pretty darn good Whereas the intuitor might be more interested in like looking at those reviews and seeing the, the trends that come out, how the reviews make that person feel. Would you say that that's kind of an example? Yeah,
1: I think that's a good example. Another example I might use is you know, as a sensor, when I'm writing a book, I might be more interested in the research, yeah, and getting all the details of the plot in place. Mm-hmm. I am not a writer so I don't know I'm just I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I know that makes a ton of
0: as sense. As
1: an intuitor, I might have the overall story in mind and the plot just kind of takes care of itself.
0: Yeah, I would be super interested to see the difference between like pantsing and plotting. As well, are you familiar with
1: those? Oh yeah, pantsing. Yeah. Yeah. You said pantsing. First thing I thought was, <laughs> you know, elementary pants school. Down. <laughs> yeah, dropping your yeah. your trow.
0: Yeah. So, you know, an intuiter, like I don't do much plotting or outlining. So an intuiter, they might be more likely, if you're an intuitive writer, you might be more likely to not worry about the outline and go where the story leads you. Uh, maybe even be more character-driven as opposed to a sensor. It might even be more plot-driven, perhaps. Uh, and, yeah, I could see how a sensor might feel more comfortable, you know, knowing beginning to end a little bit more, things like that.
1: Yeah, I would guess that some of the great writers, or, or, you know, I think specifically of somebody who's incredibly detailed, like a Tolkien,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know,
1: where he gives so much detail. I he would to
0: keep track of so many moving parts. Yeah, yeah.
1: I would guess he's more of a censor.
0: I don't know. Yeah.
1: Uh, or even a Stephen King, if you're familiar with Stephen King's writings. I mean, he, the, one of the reasons, you know, his book, can I say that the book title? Yeah. The Stand, mm-hmm. you know, is, it was such a, a, you know, I thought it was a, a great book uh but it was so incredibly detailed that uh he almost has to be a censor I, i'm i don't know yeah you know yeah. I'm, i can't speak for we've for never sat old down Steven. and talked to him, but
0: yeah sometimes it is a fun i'll do this with my characters i'll look at a character and this is something else you can keep in mind with the sensing and intuition is that some characters are going to be a lot more like they're going to gather information by what they see you know like a sherlock holmes type or something or would you yeah would you say sherlock holmes was an intuitor though because he kind of assimilated a bunch of data at once
1: he assimilated the data and then came up with his understanding of the data Uh so i would again i would guess yeah that he was a a perfect example of a sensor even though he said okay you know even
0: though he kind of gathers it yeah
1: yeah, that's an
0: interesting one.
1: Yeah, because he's he's getting all the details. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it that he said to uh, to? Oh, it's uh, elementary. I was going to say it was intuition, dear Watson. <laughs> no, it's elementary, Watson, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I would guess you know that mystery novels they kind of tickle that sensor
0: mm-hmm. person. Yeah, because... you're gathering the data, coming to your conclusions. Uh, you know, if you're going way deeper into like psychology and character development. I could see that being more of the intuitive side of things. Yeah. The next pair is where we at how you make decisions, right?
1: Yep, it's how you make decisions. So now you've you have gathered the information. And since you've gathered the information using your senses or using your intuition, now you're going to be making decisions with that information that you've gathered. And that's where we're going to get to the next process pair, which is uh, thinking or feeling.
0: This is maybe even the most uh, charged difference, would you say?
1: I absolutely think this is the one that people get most defensive about because there are some potentially major pitfalls if you don't yeah, understand this. Or
0: maybe even not defensive, but just like I can think of a lot of our disagreements probably boil down to thinking versus feeling.
1: Sure. Yep. Uh,
0: so yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and start. So I'm a feeler. And basically what that means is I make decisions based on whether or not they feel like the right decision to me. So this doesn't mean like you throw rules out the window or something, but a really good example that I can think of that shows my feeling and Scott's thinking. Can I tell them about when we moved? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we had to move. It was maybe like a three hour move. And so Scott was on Craigslist and found a place to rent that in his mind, checked all the boxes of what we would need in a house. And basically was ready to almost sight unseen, say, Hey, we want this place. And we did drive in like the very next day, we drove in with the kids to look at it. The The person showing us the house was right there. Basically we needed to decide right then in that, you know, I bet we only spent 10 minutes, you know, in the house. And we had to decide if we were going to take it. And so Scott is a thinker, like I said, it checked all of his boxes, and it was super close to work. And it had the right number of bedrooms. And it was available. Like, hey, let's do it. And for me, it was so much more like I, my ideal house shopping would be checking out several different places, walking around,
1: Literally walking around,
0: literally walking around. Like I'm a huge pacer guys. And that, that was one of my issues. I looked at this house and like, it's not a long enough hallway to pace, <laughs> but, you know, walking around envisioning, where's my office going to go? And the biggest one, one of the biggest ones, can I picture working here? Can I picture eating my meals here with the family? Can I picture going to bed in, you know, in this particular room and not knowing that it was really, really hard. Uh, spoiler alert it is the place that we chose and it's working out just fine, but it was really hard for me to, to make that decision. I was really, really in a bad mood. That day. <laughs> I'll go ahead and a minute.
1: Well, and, and, you know, with, as a thinker, what, what we tend to do, and again, I use that word tendency, because it's important, but we tend to make decisions based on logical understandings. There really isn't much room as a thinker for, kind of that feeling, how is this going to affect things? Well, I look more at the bottom line.
0: Yeah. If it's the right decision, it's the right decision.
1: Exactly. Case
0: closed. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and that can be extremely difficult for a lot of people because they expect to be able to use their feelings and say, well, you know, how is this going to affect my values? That's, you know, it's not necessarily a feeling really doesn't have a whole lot to do with emotion as it has to do or as much to do with emotion as it has to do with how a particular decision fits into your value set. Mm-hmm. For me as a thinker, my value set may not be the most important thing. you know like right. uh, in my job, uh, as as Alana said, I, I supervise foster homes and so I will place youth into a foster home and I will look at the specific information that is going to, affect the youth, affect the home, and I will try to gather a logical decision. This right. decision has nothing to do with how I feel about it. Right. It has everything to do with, is this the right place based on all the information provided?
0: And I'm sure if I were in that position, which I would... Never survive well in your job. But I think for me, it would be more of, like I said, that picture. Can I picture this child getting along with his family? Based on what, as a thinker, it's easier for him to explain the linear progression of, you know, A, B, C, and D equals E. Whereas for me, like, it would be harder for me to explain Things like, okay, I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I know there have been times where I'm like, well, no, I don't want to do this, or this is a decision I think we should make. But it's harder for me to explain that because it's all happening internally, and it's not really based on, like, logic or equations necessarily. So a really good example from the writing world would be, like, a thinker would probably be totally fine with saying, hey, this is a hot genre. I bet I could write in it and dive in whereas a feeler would have to really, uh, you know, do a lot of internal questioning. Can I see myself doing this genre? Is this a project I would love? And so I do that, you know, a lot. A lot of my decisions, yeah, if I were a thinker, I would make a lot of different decisions because I would probably be More able to say, "Hey, this sounds like a good business decision." You know, Scott and I have been talking about my shiny object syndrome (laughs) project, and I think that's like almost all feelers. (laughs) Like, this sounds exciting.
1: (laughs) It it is. I think it does give some some really keen insight into who we are as we start to understand how these tendencies affect everyday life. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah as a as a thinker, you know, I really don't care about. I mean it sounds bad. I don't care about feelings. Yeah. Because I want to make the right decision based on all the information. And so as a writer, yeah, I would say, look, I know that I can make a hundred thousand dollars a year writing in this genre. That's what I'm gonna do. It has really nothing to do with whether or not I feel like this is the best genre now. Right. You know, and I say nothing to do with, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm using kind of an extreme right, example correct. here. There's totally, yeah. always, you know, I'm always going to be taking in my personal values. I'm not going to mm-hmm. write in a genre that doesn't fit my value system mm-hmm. or anything like mm-hmm.
0: that. Yeah. But I think in it, um, a feeler would have a lot harder time writing something that they weren't kind of creatively behind.
1: Sure. -hmm. Yeah, and I I, I would agree that a a thinker is probably going to be more likely, or they would tend more likely, to write based on how successful they know they can be. Yeah,
0: and I think it's important to note, you know, that neither of these is better or worse, and they're both totally valid. And the world would be a real mess if we were all thinkers or if we were all feelers. (laughs) It'd be a major mess. Even,
1: you know, a marriage could be a real mess. You know, like it's important for us. To realize that we are very different people, Mm -hmm. but that it's those differences that really make us,
0: uh,
1: I think, a successful couple.
0: Well, and the fact that we are so different means that we are always kind of in checks and balance with each other. Sure. You know, so I doubt that there would ever be a decision that we would dive into. Like, let's say, hypothetically, you could take a job in Texas and it would double our income. And if we were both just thinking, looking at the numbers, we both might say, sure, let's do it and not even take into account how it would affect the kids, you know, any of those kinds of things. And so I think it is, you know, I I really appreciate that we have both sides to look at things. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so something for you to think about, too, in your relationships, if you're, so for example you know, I don't think, I think Scott, you do an amazing job understanding that I have shiny object syndrome, <laughs> but I'm not sure that you totally understand it. Cause in your mind, it's like, Hey, you found something that works. Keep writing these books at work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, if I do that, I'm afraid I might, you know, get tired of this or, or things like that. And I think you've done a great job, even if it's not the way you would work, you just kind of understand that about me. And so, yeah, just Thinking about even your relationships, maybe some tension if you're having issues creatively with somebody else, or you know, especially if you're in a co-writing relationship and one of you is a thinker and one of you is a feeler. I could see that being a big uh, sticky point.
1: Huge possible stress, yeah. especially if you don't understand how each other mm-hmm. operates,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and that's true of any team setting. Yeah, you know, I look at, at my team within my job, and we have we have a team of 10 people plus our director and we're, I don't think any of us are, I think the likelihood is that no two of us are exactly the same. Yeah. And when we're trying to interact on a team level, that can be really, really difficult because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everybody's got different expectations. And so I can only imagine within a writing relationship where you're trying to put out a product, an artistic product Mm -hmm. that could have a huge impact by not understanding how your uh, co-writer, who is a feeler, is right. understanding things versus your thinking, yeah. that 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 can be a point of contention.
0: Oh, for sure. Like if if I were co-writing, I know some relationships. It's like one person writes the outline, the next person writes the first draft. I could see myself not doing that well, being the person writing a first draft based on someone else's outline, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I might get to chapter five and my co-writer says, "And now character A does this," and if I'm not behind that I'm like well I can't make character A do that that's not you know that's not what she would do or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah Uh, and then lastly we've got judging and perceiving I think out of all of these these are like the worst named (laughs) of them all
1: (laughs) yeah and and the names actually came came from from pretty significant research and we don't have time right now to get into it there's a reason that they chose that and that gets into some pretty like in-depth psychological issues in a good way, I mean, issues usually mean something bad right,
0: right, right. but
1: the judging and perceiving is is how we kind of react with the world around us or how we interact with the world around us and that that can be very interesting to to try to figure out because they again also have some I mean even with the name judging, you think of judging, you think somebody's going to be judgmental
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that has nothing at all to do. Yeah. With what it means,
0: or even perceiving, you know, like that seems to me like what you're looking at. Yeah, <laughs> like I can and
1: perceive something. Yeah, and I'm a
0: sensor. I'm a perceiver. What's the difference?
1: Yeah. That? So as a perceiver, and I am, I am a perceiver. And actually, my my beloved here has helped me understand that a lot more. For me, I've come to understand that I am very much uh, driven by a deadline, mm-hmm. and so I will always get the work done but I will get the work done at the last possible moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'll just kind of, you know, always be thinking about it, going into it, but then I'll finally do it when it's time to do it, not before because it would be a waste of my time uh, because I can be doing other things. Maybe I can be doing a fun something or other. And and so that's a, it's a challenge, I think, for people to understand what that means. It doesn't mean that I'm going to do it wrong, But, you know, like one of the issues that I can really think of this becoming a a problem is going to be in something like a group project. Mm -hmm. You know, a a group project where you're the opposite of a perceiver, which is a judger, which means you have kind of everything very specifically lined out and when it's going to happen and the order it's going to happen. And a perceiver who's going to wait until the last possible moment and do it and even do a good job. But the judger's waiting on the perceiver, and the perceiver's saying, stop stop nagging me. It'll yeah. get done.
0: <laughs> right, right. So the, the judger is the kind of person who plans ahead, and the perceiver likes to be more spontaneous, things like that. It makes mean, you feel like that's a decent...
1: Yeah, and, and likes to is isn't even necessarily the, the right yeah. thing. I think it's just that that natural, like, this is just the way it is. Yeah. You know, you're going to... I, and and I, I want to put that caveat in there because a lot of people think that well i like to do this and therefore maybe i can change it because it's just
0: like mm-hmm.
1: but in reality it's kind it's
0: of an ingrown
1: yeah. part of who you are yeah. in fact uh, jung would say this is this is very much part of our nature as opposed to being the way that we were nurtured yeah these sure. are our born in, tendencies
0: in yeah I, in college, I called myself a reverse procrastinator because I would try to get everything done, you know, a month ahead of time because I don't like the deadlines. So in the writing world, the judger, so the person who kind of plans everything out ahead of time, uh, they might be more likely to like to do the outline. I would be the exception to that. But some judgers, I'm sure, would really like the very heavy outlines and the perceivers, like what Scott was saying with deadlines, the perceivers would very likely be the kind of people who would put up a KDP pre-order just so that they had a date that they had to write it by. Because <laughs> if there's not any external factors involved, it just becomes too easy to push it back, push it back, push it back.
1: You know, the funny thing is I have no idea what you just said. Because oh, you, yeah, you're speaking a <laughs> language that I don't wingo. speak. <laughs> But I I, I think I get the the overall feel for what you're saying. Yeah, I I might need to have a deadline in order to make something happen. Mm -hmm. Because without that... Yeah, it just might not happen because I don't have a I don't have a reason to get it done.
0: And you know, a judger or sorry, a perceiver author might be more of the seat of the pants kind of writer. I'm gonna write when fancy strikes. Now I think there's a, a place to be disciplined, but there's also a place to let creativity do its thing. So my joke is that I'm very much a judger in that I like to have my structure and my plans and my goals. But my muse is totally the opposite. <laughs> and so that's an interesting dynamic. I don't know if any of you listening have that same issue. Like I'm super disciplined in my work schedule and things like that. But when it comes to the creativity, I really don't know what I'm going to be doing. So, for example, like I might know that on Wednesday I'm going to have a writing day and I don't know what I'm going to be writing until I show up to my computer. You know, I'm really good at being disciplined, carving out that time to write, <laughs> but I don't know what I'm going to be writing it. So, uh, yeah. Any other judging versus perceiving differences that you can think of that impact the writing life specifically?
1: The impact the writing life specifically. You know, not necessarily. I, I just think the one thing that that I want to make clear uh, is that being a judger doesn't mean you're judgmental. Being a perceiver doesn't mean that you're always, you know, kind of, for lack of better terms, ditzy. I yeah, mean,
0: flighty. Maybe. You know,
1: yeah, you can have, you, you have your way of doing it.
0: And I think you can be disciplined regardless. You know, I wouldn't want somebody to say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a perceiver, so I can't stick to a, my word count goal or something. That's probably more of a cop out.
1: Well, and that's true of all of these. And, yeah. and, and now might be a good time just to kind of give a little bit of a, a, a reminder here is that none of these things, even though they're inborn, even though they're our tendencies, none of these things mean we can't do the other. Sometimes we can do the other to one degree of uh, quality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, versus another. Uh, I don't know that I said that well, uh, but because just because I am a natural extrovert doesn't mean that I cannot do introverted things. Mm-hmm. Or just because you are a natural uh, intuitor doesn't mean that you can't look at details. Right. These right. are all important parts of life that we have to do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will find that in their uh, home life versus their work life, or maybe you know your writing life versus your family life, or, or however you want to break that up, you can have two very different Tendencies, because just like any habit, you can train yourself to do something. You know, I kind of like to look at it this way, and this kind of goes back to you know, kind of the very beginning when we start to look at tendencies. My tendency, not not my tendency, the way that I work is I am a right-handed person. When I sign my name, I do so with my right hand. Doesn't mean I can't train myself to do so with my left hand.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It just means that. I choose not to unless there's a reason, but if I break my right arm, I'm going to have to train myself to use it. It doesn't mean I can't do it. And sometimes, you know, early on in life, we train ourselves to be a certain way because that's the expectation. Mm -hmm. But when we're honest with ourselves, I think we start to see our natural tendency and that helps us understand just kind of on a deeper level who we are
0: yeah well thank you to Scott for joining us Thank you to those of you listening Scott like I said has his certification now to walk people through the official test so, you know you can find free online tests that will give you a feel for your Meyer Briggs personality type but he's got the official
1: well can, can I jump in on that mm-hmm. the the free tests that are out there do not actually use the Myers- Briggs. Uh, formula. They don't use the Myers Briggs research. The they use the letters. But if there if there's a free test out there, really what they've done is they've come up with their own version, and those are a lot less consistent. One thing with the Myers Briggs type indicator is it's very very consistent and reliable because it's got years of years decades of research behind it. I mean, this is a tool that 89 out of the Fortune 100 companies use on a regular basis for their their businesses. They don't use the free ones that are on there because the free ones really don't do what you think they're going to do. They're not legally able to use the Myers-Briggs materials.
0: So if you're interested in the official test What that involves is the online questionnaire, and then you can sit down with Scott going over your test results as well as more in-depth into each of these facets. So if that sounds intriguing to you, I'll go ahead and include a link in the show notes for right now, at least. It's November 2019. You can also get a time management consultation with me. We're kind of pairing up these together because, you know, the more you understand about your personality, the more it really is going to help your productive output, your creative output. So if you guys are interested in more of that, check out the show notes. And thank you again, Scott. And thanks to everyone who joined us. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks.